I like who I am out there. I know that sounds really cliche and weird, but but especially when I do a really long backpacking trip and I'm gone for weeks at a time. By the time I come back, I'm I'm like I don't know. I'm 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 changed in a really good way. Episode 384: Backpacking, Hiking Trails, and Mount Rainier in the Pacific Northwest with Tammy Sars. This episode is brought to you in part by Kind. Kind makes delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients. If you guys haven't tried it yet, their pressed bars by Kind are the best in my opinion. Go try the mango apple chia. It's awesome. We've got a special offer for you guys to try 20 Kind snacks with their new snack pack. You can enjoy 50% off and free shipping on your first snack pack when you subscribe to it through Snack Club, which is Kind's monthly snacks subscription service. Go to kindsnacks.com slash sports for more details. That's kindsnacks.com slash sports to learn more and to subscribe to the Snack Pack. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hey friends, Kurt here. Thank you again for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast today. Today's show is all things Mount Rainier National Park, including all things hiking. We're going to talk with Tammy Asars, who is kind of a quasi-semi-professional backpacker-hiker gal who's written four books about backpacking and hiking in the Pacific Northwest. She grew up in the Pacific Northwest And I'm really excited to, this time, not just hear about climbing Rainier, which we've had on the show several times, but hearing about the the Northwest in general, and specifically Mount Rainier Rainier National Park. So, Tammy, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me, Kurt. Yeah, you bet. So, Tammy, you have not just written the book on Mount Rainier National Park. You've written two books (laughs) on Mount Rainier National Park and books about other areas around there. Um, That makes you kind of the expert. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I I do spend quite a bit of time down there, so I feel like I have quite a bit of knowledge about the park and kind of know it intimately, all its little backcountry areas and where people get out and explore or should be getting out and exploring, which is why I wrote the books, to help them find those spots. Right on. So we're going to come back to the books a little bit later and get more detail about what they are. I have your most recent book, which is Day Hiking Mount Rainier, in front of me, Tammy. And Mm -hmm. I've been going through it, and it's it's a beautiful guide, 80 different day hikes in uh, in and around Mount Rainier National Park. So we're going to get to that in a little bit, but first... I want to talk about a little bit more about you and what it was like growing up where you did, and then about hiking in general, and then we'll come back to these guides that you've written, which are fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Um, I grew up in western Washington. I kind of bounced all over. I was born in Bellingham and bounced out to the San Juans, then grew up going to high school in Marysville, Washington, and moved to Seattle area where I went to college, and then eventually sort of migrated towards the Cascades, and now live in North Bend, the beautiful suburb of North Bend, Washington. And um, yeah, I served as an active uh, professional backpacking guide for quite a few years, showing folks of all different skill levels the beauty of the Pacific Northwest, which was amazing, especially from someone from like, say, Houston that didn't get to see this, this this kind of landscape. And, you know, of course, the training was always a challenge with something someone like that because, you know, where do they go to sort of pump up elevation? So they were doing stadium steps and things to get out and see this <laughs> wow. beautiful land, landscape we have, the elevation. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, I've hiked most of Washington State, even like the nooks and crannies, like up by Pesaten Wilderness and all those different areas. I try to uh, get to as many places as I possibly can. I just feel it's so therapeutic to see as much as I can of the state. Plus, it's uh, it's my job as a uh, professional freelance outdoors writer to uh, to get to these places and share them with others. I love it. I love it. I like to ask this question to everyone who comes on the show who likes hiking and backpacking. Why do you hike? What's what's in it for you? Well, for me, I just find um, a better version of myself when I'm out on the trail. I I just think when you are isolated from the external influences and screens and all those kinds of things, you really have to dig a little bit to find exactly who that person is that has been inundated, right? And I just find when I'm out there, I can um, kind of let go of a lot of that kind of stress and those things that pile up every day. And so for me, that's why I do it. But it's it's kind of a funny question, Kurt, and I've, I've often thought of this because back in the day, like if, if you had flashed back to, you know, to caveman years and said, hey, I'm going to just throw this backpack on and go wander in the woods for no good purpose. They would look at you like you're absolutely crazy. We had a purpose, right? All primitive people had a purpose for doing this. It was either to go find sustenance or uh, later on to take your livestock up into the high country to graze. And, and many of the trails down at Mount Adams go straight up because of that. You know, they just wanted to get to the high country without switching back. It was just a straight line. Um, but you think about that. And now, our purpose has completely shifted into a focus of sort of therapy in a modern world. And I think that's really cool how far we've come, but we still need it. We still need that land and that natural environment for for a deeper sort of uh, shifted purpose. Mm. That's one of the better answers that we've ever had to that question. I Oh, <laughs> I think it's fascinating, too, how it used to be done for a purpose. You know, you go back to the like you were saying. We've had the Native Americans, we had the early settlers, we had prospectors, we had uh, people that were sheep herders and, and all that kind of thing, or, or cattle herders. And everyone had a reason, but today's reason is so different. And here's the weird part about it. If you had to get your cattle or your sheep up to grazing, then there really wasn't a choice. It's what you were going to do. But in today's world, we have the choice. We don't have to go. And it's kind of amazing that so many people do go, but I guess here's where I'm headed with this. I'm the guy who loves hiking. I have a podcast about it, right? And I yeah. find myself so busy that I don't even get out hiking as much as I would like to. And uh, sometimes when I get out and go on a, a hike, I all of a sudden it hits me, oh, this is why I do this. And I can't even really describe it. If someone yeah. asked me that question, I'd be like, uh... I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I like to be in pretty places. <laughs> it's an experience, you know, but it's more than just yeah. an experience. You said it It kind of connects you to your better version of yourself. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like who I am out there. I know that sounds really cliche and weird, but, but especially when I do a really long backpacking trip and I'm gone for weeks at a time, by the time I come back, I'm I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm changed in a really good way. And it, it may not stick around forever and carry through as the years go by, but I feel like it just keeps me coming back for more and more because I want to feel that again. I, and I like that. And you, your, your physical body changes, you get in better physical shape and maybe that's part of it. You kick up some endorphins and you just, 
you know, but also you're just breathing this fresh air and you're seeing life from such a simplified viewpoint. There's really nothing more amazing than just standing and staring at a giant volcano or watching a marmot. They play patty cake because, you know, they talk with their hands and like just watching that from a distance and seeing these magnificent animals. And this goes on every single day, the little trickles of water, the whatever it is, the blowing breezes on the wildflowers. Well, we're sitting at our desks staring at a screen, not even thinking remotely about what's happening in the backcountry. All this is happening day in, day out, 24 hours a day. That little water is trickling down a stream. And it's like when you're out there for a while and you're you're just emerged in that, or excuse me, submerged in that. You're, you're feeling uh, this sort of, um, I don't know, primitive connection, maybe it is, to the landscape. And I think it's so funny, you know, some people are like, oh, I'm not outdoorsy at all, or I, I don't like, you know, I, I, you'll go to a party and, and talk to people. Oh, yeah, you do this, you do the hiking thing, or you do the outdoorsy thing, and that's not me. I don't really like that. And it's like, you are of that place. You're not right. of skyscrapers and screens. That's where you <laughs> came from, you know, and we've just evolved as human beings into this very modern world where everything is super convenient. And I, I too love the conveniences, but it's, it's really nice to kind of flash back in that, in that mindset and think, you know, um, you may not be outdoorsy, but I'll bet you if I took you up to say sunrise on Mount Rainier and we stood together and looked around and, br and breathed in that fresh air, I'll bet you, you would feel pretty connected. It's hard not to, right? It's so pretty up there. I think that people can really kind of get stuck in what they're familiar with because what we don't know is a little bit scary, not because it's dangerous, but because it's unknown. And, uh, I found a lot of people who don't think they're outdoorsy usually just haven't really experienced it. You know, maybe they swatted a few too many mosquitoes on some weekend and said, this isn't for me, but they really haven't had that, that full immersion that you're talking about. Yeah. And there are some people, of course, that, you know, that are maybe not going to be as connected, but you're right. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things to be said about learning too. I, I find that the human brain just constantly wants to learn. Even if it's not a conscious thought, you're always seeking more information. And when you go out there, there nature is such a wonderful teacher. I mean, you look at a fire zone, for example, and how after fires, it's, you know, it's devastating and we're all so bummed. It's like, oh, half the Mount Adams wilderness burned in this, in this wildfire. And it, but you go back in that environment, you know, two or three years later, and you're seeing woodpeckers that you had never seen before because they're coming for the insects that are coming out of these fire charred logs, or you see hummingbirds on, on, um, on fireweed, you just see all this rejuvenation. And it's like, there's a lot to be said for crashing and burning metaphorically in your life and then springing back up with a lot of beauty and a, a lot of, um, a lot of, I guess it would be like, um, nutrients to offer the world. I, and I know that's kind of going down a little bit of a metaphoric rabbit hole, but that's what I mean about nature being the ultimate teacher. It's really super cool to have, uh, have that experience out there and, and get, to kind of start thinking in, in, um, in, you know, metaphoric terms with respect to your life and just walking along a trail. Mm, yeah. You know, I loved what you said about all of the action that's going on in nature happening when we're not there. And as you were describing the water and, and the marmots and all that kind of stuff, I'm like, oh, I'm missing out. It's going on and <laughs> I can't see it. Someone turned on the television and didn't tell me the movie was playing, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. That's, it's kind of nuts, but really it's true. There's so much going on and we are missing it when we're not there. 
I don't know about you, Tammy, but when I go into these places, I feel like I'm going home. And when I come out of these places, then even though I have a home, I kind of feel like, well, I'm away from home in a way. Does that ever happen to you? Oh, absolutely. All the time. And uh, I've actually written about that too. It's kind of a weird thing, especially if you do a really long distance backpacking trail, how you go out there and it's like uh, you you plan for it, you train for it, you, you dream about it for months, then you get out on the trail and all of a sudden, you know, on day three, you're like, oh, wait a minute, this is so different. Like the, you know, flush toilets and running water and all these things you, that you have at home, you're, you're sort of challenged by figuring your way out there. And, and it's like, you, you kind of, but you almost feel like, okay, connected to this area. And then after you're out there a while, you're kind of pulled towards home again. You're like, okay, it'll be really nice to get back home and have salad and a, and a warm bed. But then the second I get home, I'm like, okay, this doesn't feel right. I, that bed was nice and the food was delicious, <laughs> but I'm ready to go back out there. And I get in these cycles with long distance trails. And I think most backpackers and hikers do where you can't wait to go and then you can't wait to go home and then you can't wait to go back out again. Your brain gets a little confused about which is home, which is right and which is more comfortable because, and I don't mean comfortable in the sense of being comfortable. I mean, we're not in Tempur-Pedic mattresses, obviously, while we're out on the trail, but, but I mean, just, you know, what is more um, fulfilling, I guess you could say. It's like you have the modern conveniences of home, but you have that stress, like when you're actually in your physical house. Out there, you don't have that stress, but you have the physical challenges of sleeping and, you know, not having the modern conveniences around you. So, yeah, it's, it's a back and forth. It's an interesting concept. It really is. I kind of feel like when I'm in my home home in town, I kind of feel like that's what rests my body and, and is the convenience is fed. You know, I can, I can really do things then to take care of my physical self. And when I go backpacking, that's what feeds my soul. And sure, it's good for my physical self too, because then I'm getting my exercise, but it's harder to take care of all the other stuff. You know what I mean? It's oh, harder totally. to sleep well. It's harder to eat what you want to eat. It's it's harder to rest all the way through the night sometimes. And but that's when my soul is fed. And uh, in my mind, it's kind of like that. Totally. It's like a. It, it's physically harder on your body, but it but it's so much easier on your soul. And it's the opposite in your home home. Isn't that mm-hmm. interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We. I feel like at you know when you're in your social world, I'll call it that way, in society, in the everyday experience, then there are all sorts of low-grade stresses that we all deal with every day. It's just natural. It's the way it is, but it's kind of stress-producing. But then you go out into nature, and it's stress-reducing. Yeah, it's uh, it's very simplistic out there, which is what I really love about it. There's there's just not a lot going on that you have to worry about or think about if you're well prepared, of course. Um, mm. But you know, you just you're walking through these wildflowers, and you're 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 all of your senses are heightened. Every single one of them is heightened, and these are senses we don't maybe use as much at home. Um, like it, it's really interesting. I will sometimes um, be aware that there's something staring at me. And I'll look and I'll see a marmot or a pika or a deer or something. And I can also, after several days out on the trail, 
uh, my sense of smell gets pretty keen and I can smell if a day hiker's coming just because they smell very fresh. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. Or, or even, um, just, a like a musty smell and sometimes you don't even see it, but there's an elk nearby or an elk's to me, they smell like a lot like uh, horses, but you can kind of, you can kind of get that scent sometimes on a breeze and you, you hone in on those things, but you don't when you're sitting at your desk cause you don't need to use it obviously. Right. So it's just interesting what it does for you and maybe even really in subtle ways that we don't think about. Oh yeah, absolutely. I want to just throw something out there for your, uh, it's a bunny trail, but for your perspective, I was reading about a guy who he would go into the woods on these hikes and, you know, if you're walking down the trail and you meet somebody, then, you know, you greet each other and, okay, you're aware of each other. And then he started stepping off the trail and people would walk up on him and, and still s- say hi and what have you. But then he started saying, you know what, I'm going to quit broadcasting that I'm here. He would step off the trail in plain sight, but he would, he would say he would scatter his consciousness, whatever that means. Yeah. So he wasn't, he wasn't a particular presence and people would walk by and never see him. Hmm. Now, you mentioned sensing people around you after you've been out in nature for a long time, right? And that's why I threw it out there. I just like, I don't know about that. Does that work? Is that a thing, you know? Yeah. What do you think? Uh, it's a question whether or not others might have sensed him. So the idea that we do sense each other, for instance, you said that you'd feel like you, you could tell that something's looking at you and then you turn around and maybe there's a deer or a marmot that's staring at you. And it's like, yeah. that's something that we don't normally express or experience, you know, in downtown well, Seattle, for instance. Or do we? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I, I feel like uh, two things. One is if I'm with other people, I don't have that heightened sense. If we're visiting or if we're, if I'm immersed in other things, if my brain is super active and busy, for example, if I go on a day hike and even if it's a really long one, like it's 14 miles or something and I'm eight miles in and all I can think about is I got to get back before sunset and tomorrow I have this thing. And, you know, if my brain is cluttered with noise, I don't have that heightened sense. And I also don't have it if I'm, you know, if other people are in the vicinity, even if even if we're fairly close by, but not visiting, if there's another person nearby, and I don't know if that skews things or even what really what that is. I suppose a psychiatrist or psychologist somewhere could probably unravel that for us. But, um, but if I'm by myself, I definitely have it. And even if I'm with other people, but we're separated, like when we do our long distance through hikes, we'll often be, you know, within a half an hour of each other, just you know, some space and some quiet time. And, and, uh, if I'm within that half an hour, even, and I'm just sort of walking by myself, knowing there's other people around, I will still have that heightened sense. So it's possible that that study was done, you know, with, with groups of people walking by, as opposed to just one or two people, it would be a really interesting Mm. study to do to find out if there was just like, if you were to just send one individual on a long trail down and see if they could tell that someone was there. Well, this is kind of, a, like I said, a bunny trail, but I love what you're saying about a heightened sense. And it's not like this is uh, extrasensory perception. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what no, humans no. have always had. We're talking about what the hunter-gatherers used to be in touch with their surroundings in nature, right? That's what we're talking about. Yeah, and I think I think hunters, really good hunters, even in this modern age, I don't hunt myself, but I, I bet you if you talk to a few people that do, I'll bet they would probably tell you that that's spot on, that that's part of what they use to 
to find lives or to find deer and wildlife. So I think that it's part of the experience of backpacking and hiking that is so special is when you do start connecting with nature, you get into the flow and the rhythm of it. How long does it take you to really get in the rhythm of nature when you go on a trip? Well, if we're doing a long trail, I would say by about day three, I'm grooving. (laughs) I'm feeling good. I'm, you know, the body is starting to warm up. Some of those aches and pains are starting to down. Um, And uh, you always get the little, you know, no matter how light your pack is, you're thrown on weight and your body's kind of like, whoa, you know, what are you doing to me? Because you can't gain that kind of weight overnight and it knows it. And so, you know, as far as that goes, I think it takes a few days for you to kind of go, all right, all right. It's not super comfortable when I put on my hip belt, but we're good here. Uh, And um, yeah, I'd say about three days. Now, if I'm doing a lot of day hiking, like when I write my guides, what I often will do is I'll go down and I'll stay in the area and... I'll be there for weeks at a time and I'm going out uh, and doing really long days and researching the trails. And then I'm coming back at night to sort of civilization, which in, in cases like Mount Rainier, it's civilization. But let's face it, you know, a lot of the areas down there are tiny little towns and it still has this quaint feeling. Um, but it, you still get that that feeling. Um, maybe not quite as much as on a backpacking trip, but it's still you get that sensation of being out there and, and sort of... Um, and settling in uh, with whatever you're doing. I'm, I'm glad we talked about that a little bit. I think it's fascinating, that di- that whole dynamic. And I don't have good words to describe it, but I think it is one of the main reasons that people continue to go out. It's one of the reasons why people backpack and hike. It's really hard to put your finger on exactly what it is, isn't it? It's, uh, it's just a it's a feeling. It's the way you feel. And like the only way I've really found words for it is just a better version of myself. I feel healthier. I feel it physically and spiritually. I feel healthier out there. Mm. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But do people listening to this podcast probably get it too. I bet there's people going, yep, yep, been there. Because, you know, so many of us do. We do that. We go out there and we feel a different way. It changes the the way you feel and it changes the way your day is going. I mean, you're coming back, even if you're doing a day hike, you're driving down to Mount Rainier and you're doing this day hike and you're coming back. The ride home and the car feels um, somehow elevated and a little bit better. You know what I mean? It's mm. just, it's, it's just interesting. At least that's my experience. That is if you're not sound asleep, if it's a really hard hike, <laughs> you're probably sleeping all the way home. Well, my wife has noticed over the years, obviously that I need it. And there are times when she'll just say, go, get out of here. <laughs> you, you've got to go yeah. back and connect with nature again. You're, you're too tense. You know, it makes a world of difference. Hey, ASP listeners, have you ever tried a Kind Bar? You may have seen them in your local grocery store, coffee shop, or gym. They make delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients. Well, if you're ready to try some tasty and healthy snacks, we've got a special deal for you. Try 20 Kind Snacks from seven of their unique product lines with their new snack pack. You can enjoy 50% off and free shipping on your first snack pack when you subscribe to it through their Snack Club. Snack Club is Kind's monthly snacks subscription service. Go to kindsnacks.com sports for more details on that. I love their pressed bars like the mango apple chia bars, or I pretty much guarantee you're going to love their breakfast bars first thing in the morning when you climb out of that hammock. So take a minute and see what they're creating over at kindsnacks.com sports and get your 50% off plus free shipping on your first order. That's kindsnacks.com sports. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. 
The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. You know, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the details of backpacking because we have done that on uh, numerous shows and uh, our listeners can can find those shows. Easy enough. Just go to Adventure Sports Podcast, click on Episode Categories, and boom, you're there. You'll get to see all that stuff. But I do have a couple of questions that I should ask every single hiker, and that is, um, well, one came in from a patron of ours. Mandy asked, what is the one thing that you always take with you in your pack? The one thing you would you would never leave at home? Well, I have, I mean, this is going to be the most boring cliche answer ever, but I have the 10 essentials and I have them in a little, um, it's like a little mesh bag. And so what I did is I went and bought everything that goes into the 10 essential kit. And I know this might sound like overkill and people are going to think I'm crazy, but because I do so much backpacking, I have this little tiny headlamp and it has new batteries and it lives in there. It never comes out of there unless I need it during my expedition, but it lives in there. And, uh, you know, same with fire starter and all that stuff. I even have like a little honey packets and things in there for emergency supply, extra food. And all of that stays in that little mesh bag. And I transfer it when I go from backpacking in the summertime to say snowshoeing in the winter, that little mesh bag comes with me. And, um, it just is, um, I guess for me, it's my safety net. I never have to think about going through my 10 essentials checklist. It's just always right there. And, it's a little costly, sure, to do, and it might seem slightly wasteful to have duplicates because I have other headlamps at home, of course, and this one is specifically, that's its purpose, is <laughs> to live in this little mesh bag. Um, but I, And I just make sure that whenever I take something out, I put it back. Or like the food, I check the expiration date, you know, every six months and make sure it's fresh. And so, yeah, I would say that. And I know that that sounds really cliche, but it's for me, it's it's really important because I'm... I'm doing research for books and I'm out in places where sometimes people aren't and won't be for a long time. So I need to make sure I have what I need if something goes sideways. Uh, I like that answer. And I, I would take it a step beyond that even. It, it's tr- frustrating sometimes to try to pack a backpack for a weekend. And it, you, you know, you make your list, you go through, you try to find now, where did that end up? Where did that end up? And you try to get everything assembled and you try to get it in your pack. I know it weighs too much. Why can I leave home? And you know, you know the routine, but if you already have most of your gear in the pack already ready to go, that's kind of the next step. Then it's like, oh, add some food. I'm good to go. And it makes it so much easier to get out there. I think that people would do it more frequently. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was always scrambling. That's why I did this because it was like, okay, I got to bring fires. I got to bring, you know, and you're going through the list in your head, I got the maps and compass in it. And you do have to obviously think about your maps, but, um, but I mean, I was going through this constantly and, uh, it was like a constant state of chaos before I went out every single time and just making sure I had everything. And, uh, and so just, I was like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to organize it and it's going to be perfect and I'll do this. And it, it's, it's been great to have this little, this little kit. So very, very cool. I think uh, what you mentioned about duplicates makes sense too. You might as well have duplicates. If you know you're going to pull your compass out of your backpack to go do something else with it, then buy a second compass. Just let one live in the pack. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Yeah, totally. They're not that much money. And, you know, people often get really weird about gear and the cost of gear and all this. But I always tell people, hey, you know, you think of um, day hiking or backpacking as going on vacation. If you were to go out and have like a really awesome staycation, so you're going to visit museums, you're going here, you're going there in towns, or you're you're going to Hawaii for a week and you're going to, you know, stay in a resort or whatever, you're going to pay good money for those nights. Well, backpacking is the same way. Just buy buy the high-end gear. You'll have it for a long time and just sort of chalk it up to your vacation fund. And same with day hiking, like buy the stuff, have it, consider it a, a really fancy trip to the museum and dinner out, you know, and then just keep it in your pack. And it's, it's well worth its money if you ever need it. It's the best money you ever spent. Mm, I like that. I really do. I, I think the money is is actually not much when you divide it by the amount of joy you get out of it. You know, you can spend a lot of money on entertainment these days. Oh, sure. Yeah. This is a, a simple, I mean, once you're geared up, like you said, it lasts for years and years and years and years and years, and it's essentially free after that. So. Yep. Mount Rainier National Park. Now, one of the gems of the United States. It's so amazing out there in the Pacific Northwest. And what an amazing volcano to hike around. Can you talk to us a little bit about what is special about Mount Rainier National Park? Uh, sure. I I'm, can read you a little section of my introduction if you'd like. Yeah, let's do uh, that. In- my recent book? Okay. Uh, so standing at 14,411 feet, boasting 26 major glaciers and two craters, Mount Rainier is a vision and a legend. For years, folks have both revered and admired the massive volcanic giant, the highest mountain in the Cascade Range for its grandeur, beauty, and power. The spectacular volcano is visible from Seattle and many points in Washington State, but seeing it from a distance is simply not enough. To truly bond with the Great Peak and to appreciate its scale, you must visit Mount Rainier National Park and get up close and personal. Mm. It's not just about the volcano, though. (laughs) the area around the volcano is amazing too. Describe it in your own words. Just describe what it's like. Oh my gosh. So what's great about the volcano is that over the years, um, all the river valleys that have come off the volcano have just carved these big, deep depressions. So you have these just massive, powerful river valleys and you get to see the power of the volcano from sort of below it and what it does, you know, with the lahars and melting snow and things over the years. And then you get up really high into these, um, fragrant wildflower meadows and subalpine viewpoints. And, um, the, you get a chance often to see wildlife and, you know, I mean, if you go up to sunrise, you'll often see mountain goats in large herds. It's just really common to see them up there. And so, you know, it's not something you see in your everyday life. It's really neat to get up in those high country um, areas. And then the tundra plants up high, and then you start dropping down in the different subalpine zones and and down into the forested zones and you see really beautiful things like in the spring you see these little gorgeous uh lady slipper flowers that are like calypso orchids and you have to kind of hunt for them and and you see you know and up higher you get the lupin and you get the paintbrush and you get it's just there's so much to see and it's so so incredibly beautiful we are so spoiled in the pacific northwest to have this gorgeous national park right in our backyard 
And anyone who, who is visiting or lives in the greater Puget Sound that has not been down and spent some time in Mount Rainier, you'll go down there and just be in awe. It's, it's truly a spectacle, whether you see it from the car or get out and, and hike in it. You, there's something to see for everybody. It's really a gorgeous place. Mm. One thing I love about the Pacific Northwest, and I think Mount Rainier National Park has it in spades, it's the amount of moisture. It's the it's the rainfall, the snow. It, it's very, very lush. It's just full, packed full of life. And, you know, there are other places that are obviously beautiful, but they don't have that vibrancy that you can get in the Pacific Northwest. I think that's one of the things about that area that just blows me away every time I'm there. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you go down by, um, you know, Longmire and, or, or even over by uh, Ipset area and you look at those giant trees and that oh, the former Carbon River Road, they're massive, massive trees. And you just think about that. Very few trees grow that big and live that long because of fires. But we have so much moisture that these trees just grow and grow and grow and grow. And everything has a shelf life, right? So at some point, these trees will probably die a natural death. But it's not going to be f- necessarily fire or wind or uh, hopefully um, fungus or something that will kill them. Hopefully, it will just be a natural death. But in the meantime, they grow. And they grow so prolific and big and crazy and healthy. And um, in fact, some of them are, are so, so tall that when you're standing at the base, you know, it's it's one of those things that's almost undescribable. You really get your place in the whole uh, universe. When you're standing next to them, you realize that you are truly just an ant, you know, right. in, the, in the world. And the world around you is just huge. Well, when I saw some of the big trees that are out there, my perspective first was that I couldn't comprehend it because I knew how big a tree was and what I was looking at didn't fit that. It it just, you know, yeah. it kind of twisted the mind for a little bit there. Like, what? And, and then you start feeling very, very small. <laughs> like yeah. you said, yeah. if that's that big, then how big am I? But yeah. how amazing is it to encounter another living thing? It might be a thousand years old or older. And it's just massive, you know? Yeah, I think I can't help but personify everything. So I think of a tree, like, you know, if you were a person, what have you seen, (laughs) you know, over the years, what has changed? And when you think about a national park, I mean, Mount Rainier was signed into uh, becoming a national park March 2nd in 1899. So it was, it's one of, you know, the first national parks. And you think about that and very little has changed in the eyes of a tree in that park. Mm. I mean, it it may have seen, (laughs) it may have gone from horses to, you know, old fashioned cars to regular cars to a washed out river valley and hikers carrying different types of packs. But really, not a lot more has changed, which is so cool to think about that. Yeah, we're just kind of a blip on the radar, aren't we? (laughs) We are. (laughs) Yeah. That's amazing. Amazing to think about. As I'm sure you know from listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, some of the safest and best snow conditions for backcountry skiing of the whole year happen in the springtime. And Bentgate has the gear you need. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. 
They also rent out gear, so you can get your skis and your boots there, as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts, so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. Well, you've written two books that are focused on the National Park, and uh, just go ahead and tell us what those two books are and, and how they contrast each other. Sure. So uh, my first book, Hiking the Wonderland Trail, is a complete guide to Mount Rainier's premier trail, which is approximately 90 to 93 miles, depending on which map you follow and who you ask, uh, around the base of Mount Rainier. And it goes up and down like the stock market through the river valleys and then pops you back up into the high alpine country and drops you back down into these spectacular river valleys. And um, it's a challenging trail for sure. It climbs about 22 to 23,000 feet of elevation gain around the entire thing. So Ooh. it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of, uh, a, a lot of challenge in it for sure, but it's so spectacular. I would wish every child and Guinea pig the opportunity to get out there and do it because, um, it's, uh, you know, when I talk to people about it, I almost always, the response I get is, Oh, I want to go do that. And I tell them, do it. You know, you get one lap around this track in life. And the Wonderland trail is one of those places that you're going to tell your grandkids about that you did because, um, it sticks with you. It's, um, it's true. It's just true soul shampoo. There's so many places I think back on, on that trail where you're just standing in awe of something. The mountain looks so different from so many different angles. The way we see it from Seattle is totally different than the way you're going to see it in the backcountry. It looks like a, uh, in places it looks pathetic, like a little crumbling mountain of stone and, and, and you look at it and if you, if someone dropped you there out of a helicopter to stare at that mountain from the Wonderland trail in that particular spot, you'd be, you, you'd be hard pressed to say that that was Mount Rainier. So that's what I love about it. It has such a changing face. The other thing is you get a little glimpse of history because there's patrol cabins, ranger cabins in the backcountry there. And, um, so those were built a lot of times by, uh, innkeepers and they were used for patrols back in the day. And now they're just kind of interesting old historic relics on the national historic register. And you get to go up and, you know, get up close and personal and look at them and kind of think about life back in the day. And I, I love history. So I think that part of it's really neat too and interesting. Uh, so I have the Wonderland trail guidebook and then I also have uh, day hiking Mount Rainier, which is just hot off the press. And, um, that one, like you had mentioned earlier, has 80 hikes in it. It is full color. And I tried to put something in there for everybody because, uh, you know, I know there's folks out there with little kids and folks with physical limitations that still want to get out and enjoy the park and see things. And so there's um, some easy hikes like Shania's Falls and Carter and Madcap Falls and like Shadow Lake up by Sunrise. And then um, there's some more challenging ones like the the washout area of the uh, former Carbon River Road now requires a very long walk to get up to see the Carbon Glacier. But if you're so motivated, you can certainly do that. Um, and then I put some hikes in there that are on the outskirts of the park because I think there's a lot to be seen. One of my favorite ones that's on the outskirts, if you guys haven't tried this, is right in the heart of Crystal Mountain, which is so crazy. It's a commercial ski resort. But there is a beautiful lake called Henskin Lake, and there is a loop that goes all the way around. And you get into this forest, and you come across this gorgeous lake, and you would be hard-pressed to know that you're right next to a ski resort. It's really beautiful. And then you keep walking, and you come up to another lake called Lake Elizabeth, and it's just gorgeous. And it's it's all subalpine, so it's real pretty, like, meadows and... um 
and big trees. And then there's also a lot of elk down there. So you often see herds of elk and hardly anybody goes there. So you'll often have the place to yourself. And what I really love about it is once you get through this area, if you do, you know, want to treat yourself, the trail will actually take you up to the top of the gondola so you can get a bite to eat, like finish your hike with a big old fat burger from the Summit House restaurant (laughs) and get great views and then continue your hike down. I mean, it's kind of a novelty to be able to say, yeah, I stopped at a restaurant mid hike. But, um, but what's great is it protects you from the commercialism until the very end. And then you can get up there and do that if you want to do that. It's kind of a fun thing to do for the day. So there's a lot of variety in here. That's what you're saying. Yeah, tons of variety. I mean, you can get lost uh, in in true back uh, true backcountry experience where you won't see people, you know, or or very few people most of the day. Or you can go in places like you know the visitors areas and Sunrise and Paradise are are going going to be populated. But there's so many beautiful hikes in there that uh, you'll definitely want to check those out as well. And I wanted to mention, looking through the book, I like the format where you have the the routes are ranked by difficulty from one to five, but they're also ranked by I don't know what the word is, but how wonderful the experience might be. And (laughs) I think that's kind of cool. Obviously, it's subjective. But how did you rank those things? Yeah, it's very subjective. It's hard to do, you know, because it depends on who you're talking to. If you talk to someone who doesn't hike very often, the level of difficulty is going to change tremendously from someone who does it all the time and their muscles are conditioned to it. So that's kind of hard. I try to go right in the smack dab middle of those two things and try to look at it from someone who is, uh, you know, an average hiker and what they would feel about it. But then the other hard part is, you know, as far as like, um, wildlife viewing and, and exceptional views and all those kinds of things, it's like, I could have put exceptional views on almost all of these hikes because there's so much to see. Uh, even like the deep forest, uh, has exceptional views. I mean, they're not panoramic, sweeping panoramics from, you know, some vista, but you can stand in there. I mean, I've seen pygmy owls and, um, and just really cool psychedelic looking little, um, mushrooms in some of these areas that are just really, really beautiful. If you get a macro camera on them and there's stuff to see in all these places. So that, that was really, uh, hard to do, but I, I did the best I could. I tried to put, um, difficulty where people would agree with me, you know, the majority of people I asked, say if I was doing like a poll uh, and they had hiked hiked it with me. So uh, yeah, that's kind of how that landed there. Nice. Uh, You know, I'm looking through the book and the photographs are amazing. So what you're describing, I'm looking at in these pictures and I'm sure that people that live in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, this is just a book that they need to have period. But for the rest of us, I'm looking at this thinking, you know, Maybe it's time for another vacation up there. And maybe yeah. <laughs> this book will be why we go. You know what I mean? Yep. It's just so amazing. I really hope you do. And I, I hope other people do too. Um, if you can, try to make it a weekday. I know it's getting a little crowded in this greater Seattle metro area. But if you can't still go on the weekend, try to find the hikes that are a little further out there. And I will also tell people, you know, we are we are view hunters and we are view seekers. And we tend to gravitate towards those areas that have these sweeping panoramas. There's no question you need to get up there and see those. But if you do go on a weekend and you're looking for a little bit more solitude, find some of the ones that maybe don't have as many views or that have views in sort of different way. Like for example, there's a a trail up there called Palisades Lake. It's one of my favorite trails in the entire park. And the reason is because it goes up and down real gently through all these different lakes. And then you get to this spectacular lake called, as you would imagine, Palisades. Um, and it's, um, 
has a backcountry camp there, but it's it doesn't have big crazy volcano views, but the backcountry is sublime in those areas. And you can detour in the bike or excuse me, the book tells tells a little bit about it uh, uh, to a place called Hidden Lake. And that is also just a really pretty area. From there, you can detour and go check that out. And so there's lots of little places to visit. Um, but you know, a lot of people that go to the park, they they might just stick to one particular visitor area or another, but I would encourage people to really get off the beaten path, go see things that are even outside the park. There's a really beautiful lookout called High Rock Lookout, which is just outside of Elby and that's on forest service land. And it's, uh, it is, it is a mind blowingly beautiful place to spend the afternoon. It's this giant old fashioned lookout and it was spared from Mount St. Helens when it blew in 1980 because it was boarded up for the winter, but it was covered in a lot of ash and you think about its history and it's been sitting there for years on this beautiful giant rock with like a big, huge drop off on one side and just in your face views of Rainier. So there's tons of stuff to see um, inside the park and just outside the park with the book. I'm going to ask this question from a perspective of someone who doesn't live in the shadow of the mountain. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mount Rainier is an active volcano. Mm-hmm. And people that look up on the, you know, on the horizon and see it every day, it just becomes a presence for them. But for other people, what does it mean that Rainier is active? And how has it felt knowing that it's there and uh, it could get violent? I mean, what are some of the things that happen? Probably one of the the most threatening things that can happen is a lahar, and we just saw um, some of that happening in, in other countries that are having volcanic outbursts right now. But um, a lahar occurs when pressure builds up in a glacial lake, or when melting snow and ice ruptures loose and heads down the slopes of a volcano. And sometimes those travel. I mean, it's fast moving water, and it's not just water; it's sediment and it's debris and it's viscous like concrete, and it comes fast and furious at speeds of sometimes 50 miles per hour. And that is the biggest, pretty much the biggest threat of the volcano. And should a giant one occur, uh, you know, there's been studies done that it could wipe out. You know, you hear all these um, scary stories that it could wipe out towns that are downstream and things like that. But there's seismic monitor stations installed on Mount Rainier, and uh, there's also geohazard warning sirens in very pl- in specific areas that have a lot of public um, activity, and they would. Uh, event they would in the event that that would happen they would sound an alert so you would hear that but if you are traveling in the backcountry and um, you feel prolonged shaking of the ground or there's a rapid uh, rise in water levels especially like uh, near rivers and creeks if you're standing there you hear a roar like a freight train or you smell something super earthy, like just a weird, funky smell is coming at you. Um, you want to make sure you're at least 160 feet above a river valley and sort mm. of out of the flood zone. Now, that said, that might scare a lot of people away, but know this, um, the volcano, um, the odds of it erupting in our lifetime are fairly low. At least that's what the experts say. So folks shouldn't worry too much in the backcountry about potential hazards. Um, instead, you know, just spend your time, um, 
watching the puffy clouds float by and smelling the breezes and and, and just enjoying what the backcountry offers without being too concerned that uh, it's an active volcano because there are there are scientists watching it at all times so we do have a little bit of a safety net with experts in the know yeah it's not going to suddenly blow its top without giving us a little bit of warning that's for certain <laughs> yeah i mean you look so. you look back at the eruption of mount st helens right and that was in 1980 before a lot of the scientific knowledge that we have now was discovered and a lot of the technology was developed and even then they knew it was imminent so there's a, there will be a lot of different things that uh, that we will see before any major event happens hopefully well you know what I, this may sound backwards but part of the draw to Mount Rainier for me is that it is an active volcano. The idea that it's a place where the earth is expressing itself in this way and that you can go look at it and kind of be a part of it. Have you ever felt the ground shake or or anything that would be really unique to a volcano? No, I haven't. But I'll tell you... Um... In in the year 2006, uh, there was a massive, massive flood um, that happened. And folks that have lived in the Northwest for a while might remember this. It was on November 6th and 7th. And 18 inches of rain fell in just 36 hours mm. in Mount Rainier National Park. And it was, um, it was a Pineapple Express, and it just centered itself like a bullseye over the top of Mount Rainier. So you think about adding 18 inches of water uh, to creeks and streams. And you think about what that could do. Um, but it wasn't just creeks and streams because now you have melting snow. Uh, and so all of that water and debris came flowing downhill and uprooted trees and, and grabbed boulders and sent them into waterways. I mean, it took out park roads, took out an entire campground. The park was closed for a historic six months. So that was devastating for Mount Rainier National Park. It, it literally wiped tourist attractions off the map. They had to route some people that were in the park out back service roads because they couldn't get off main roads. Um, the wind ripped roofs off historic fire lookouts during that storm. It was absolutely crazy. Thankfully, it was November. So, you know, it wasn't backcountry season. It was it was pretty quiet in the backcountry and snow had already had already started falling. But um. Yeah, it was a it was a major reconstruction effort to get the the backcountry bridges all put back together. And uh, in fact, um, I worked on a park uh, service project with Student Conservation Association um, later that year, and it was just crazy. We we were down at Silver Falls and saw if if anybody's been down to Silver Falls, you know that giant bridge that goes over across the canyon, and that thing was twisted and and pretty messed up. So it was like thinking about how much water had come down there looking at that bridge was, uh, you know, it, it, it just took your breath away. It was mm. really, really remarkable. But, um, that's as close as I've seen to, um, park destruction for a volcano or actually seeing the power that, and when you're in the back country on the Wonderland trail and you see the massive glaciated, the flower, you know, the flower like sediment in the water, the milky colored streams that are just roaring down these canyons, you really do see the power of, of a volcano and what it's capable of. And you look on the side and you see the sediment and in the sediment, there's you know, trees, giant trees stuck in, sticking out of the sediment like birthday candles just st stuck in there. Mm. And so it's, <laughs> it's, it's really amazing to see that and you, and you kind of almost shudder. Um, but uh, it's, it's also like you say, it's, it, it's sort of fun and exciting to know that you're that close to 
you're standing in the ring of fire. I mean, you are on a, an active volcano, volcanic soil, um, you know, and you're on that, you're on that landscape. So it's, it's pretty fun to see that and interesting all the same. Yeah. You know, some people would say it's morbid, but I've always been so fascinated with the bigger events that the earth can throw at us. And I never like it when people are hurt, you know, loss of property, loss of life, that sort of thing. But man, earthquakes, volcanoes, hurricanes, tornadoes. I mean, who isn't a little bit fascinated with what this earth can do? You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Mm. I, I, I think it's, um, perhaps human nature to sort of want to learn. Once again, there's that learning component, but to learn more about it and to understand it and try to figure it out. You know, we've, we've had this fascination with space all of these years. It really doesn't affect our daily lives, but we want to know more. (laughs) And, um, you know, it's just the same with the volcano. It's like, what, you know, what could this thing do and what has it done? And, um, you go look at, there's a, a trail called the South Puyallup Trail, and it's in the book. And if you go there, you'll see these andesite columns, which are like these long, uh, skinny columns. It looks like spaghetti. It's rock, but it looks like spaghetti. It's just where like the lava has come down and just cooled. And it's so neat to look at that and think about how long ago that came and flowed there and made that. And uh, so there, there's lots of stuff to see in the backcountry, too, that, you know, is sort of, um, uh, I guess, give you a little more volcanic um, experience if you're really wanting to see um, sort of the raw earth. Mm, yeah, I can see that. Well, how can people get a copy of the book? Well, uh, they can go uh, to Amazon and look me up. Uh, my name is Tammy Asars, and it's T-A-M-I-A-S-A-R-S. And um, all my books are there, actually. Um, and if anyone is interested in hiking the Wonderland Trail and uh, picks up a copy of the guidebook, or if they um, want to get a copy of my smartphone app, uh, it will also be on my website, which is uh, TammyAsars.com. And um, you can get it there. And, and the smartphone app covers the entire Wonderland Trail and will tell you at any point where you're standing exactly how far it is to the next camp or water source or whatever it is. Um, it has real-time updates uh, when your phone updates uh, with user experiences. For example, if a waterway is running low, you'll know about it based on comments people have input. Um, it's all proprietary maps. I took all the photos in the app so you can see you know, what the campsite looks like that you're about to go to and things like that. So, um, People have told me it's very helpful to them. So if you're someone thinking about doing the Wonderland, that might be something for you to pick up as well. The smartphone app, and that's on your website. And what's your website? It's TammyAsars.com. TammyAsars.com. Yeah, T-A-M-I-A-S-A-R-S. If folks are looking to pick up a copy of Day Hiking Mount Rainier, I have a lot of events coming up this fall and winter, and they're all updated on my website. And a lot of them change, and I get more and more events. So uh, if one time doesn't work for you, keep checking it. Uh, and um, I do custom copies signed for folks for either gifts or for themselves or just to have. And uh, I sell them all at the events. So feel free to log on to my website. And again, that's TammyAsars.com. And it will give you the list of the events and places I will be. Very cool. Well, this fall, when we start getting close to one of the events, Tammy, send us a, a little reminder and we'll remind people about your website so that they can work that into their schedule. How about that? Okay, that sounds great. Thank you. Uh, you bet. Well, Tammy, would you have one more reading you could use to kind of wrap things up for us? 
Uh, sure. I can read you a little bit. Sometimes I get the question, well, you know, why did you write this book or why, you know, why do you spend so much time down in the park or whatever? And, you know, I was doing this long before I was writing about the park, going and spending a lot of time down there. So I will just read you a little bit in, uh, in my acknowledgement section about what this park means to me personally. And, uh, I'm sure your listeners have their own, uh, stories and thoughts about what the park means to them. But for me, it's always been an, a very important place as a third generation Washingtonian. Not only have I grown up visiting the park, but some of the significant spikes on the timeline of my life are marked, marked by its visitation on my way home from visiting the park in June of 1999. My phone rang with the exciting news of my nephew's birth. In September 2003, while sitting on a rotting log in the open landscapes northwest of Mystic Lake, my future husband asked me to marry him. In 2010, while looping the Wonderland yet again, the idea of writing a guidebook sprang into my head, and two years later, I was holding my book, Hiking the Wonderland Trail, in my hands. Later came a smartphone app for the Wonderland that I produced. Today, it's my privilege to share this book with you on day hiking in the park and give you the information on the pathways that have meant so much to me. For all these reasons and more, my first acknowledgement in this book is Mount Rainier National Park itself, which has always been there for me whenever I needed it. It's an inspiration in my soul shampoo. <laughs> I love it. Very cool. <laughs> Very cool. You really do have a connection, don't you? I I do. Like you say, I, I feel like it's home. When I'm there, I can breathe. <laughs> it's kind of a deep sigh. Well, thank you for coming on the show today and sharing that with us. You know, I think a lot of people are looking for that home. So here's a another place you might find one. So fantastic. There you go. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Kurt. I enjoyed it. Oh, you bet. And for all the listeners out there, man, Mount Rainier National Park. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> Got to get there. Until the next show, make sure that you find your place, whatever it is. Get out there and have some fun. All right, hiking in the Pacific Northwest, Mount Rainier, the Wonderland Trail. How cool does that sound? Right about now in the summer heat, I would prefer to be up there. Thanks for listening to this episode with Tammy S. Sars. Make sure you check out the show notes. We have the links to our books as well as her website where you can get more information about her and the Wonderland Trail smartphone app. If you haven't signed up to be a patron yet, please do consider becoming a patron. It's only $5 a month, and there are extra goodies in there that are available for patrons only. So do yourself a favor and get signed up as an ASP patron. Thanks, guys, and until the next time, get out and have some fun. Mm -hmm.